You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. And we are here today with Dr. Carrie Vedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas and Dr. Abby Evelyn from National Fertility Center for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. Hey, everybody. How are y'all doing? Hey, guys. How's it going? Good, good. Good. So this weekend is much calmer and much quieter and much less... uh, anxiety ridden than last weekend for which I am extraordinarily grateful. If we had ended up recording last weekend, I would have been a total basket case. What, why is that Carrie? Oh, tell us Carrie, what, what happened? So, okay. So when you guys were out here, when we did our recording session, however many months ago now, I mean, it's 2020. So five months is approximately 85 years ago, but um, (laughs) Amen. When when you were out here, you you didn't get a chance to come out to my house, but I live kind of on the edge of town. And so my backyard goes right up to a the elementary school that my kids go to and this big park area. And there's mountains, you know, there's there's like one it's like a big mountain behind y'all. There, yeah. I mean, there's like a layer of of subdivision and houses, but we are very much on the edge of town. So, okay, fine, whatever. You know, there's jackrabbits and there's other, you know, occasionally small coyotes, whatever. So I get up and I'm puttering around the house and I let the dog out and whatever. And I looked down, my, my phone dings and I look down at my text message and it's one of my girlfriends who has sent me a picture of the elementary school behind my house with virtually the exact same view that I see from my house of a mountain lion sitting on top of the stairs, just hanging out, having a great time. It was taken like, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning or so. so For the subsequent eight hours, count them, eight hours, my neighbors and I are all sitting out in various spots in our backyards and looking from our upper, like second story out of the bedrooms. watching this mountain lion. It just was hanging out? It was just hanging out. Like it went for a run in the park. <laughs> it, um, we have some really amazing footage. Was it appropriately socially distancing itself? Uh, it was mostly because everyone else was socially distancing out. <laughs> yes. I mean, we have pictures of it in the neighborhood. It went for a swim in somebody's pool. <gasps> so can't you just call like, like the wildlife people animal to come control. get it or animal control or? Yeah. They, I mean, they were called at six, seven o'clock in the morning. They didn't catch that thing until 2 PM. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And they so tranquilized what it. it. What exactly how, does a mountain lion look like and how big is it? Uh, uh, I know we're uncensored here. But I don't know how far I can push this because the <laughs> words that were running through my mouth last Saturday, it's it's big. I mean, it is like I mean, we had we've had bobcats in our like I live kind bobcats of bobcats are kind of small, aren't they? Yeah, like we've had bobcats in our neighborhood and stuff like that. But I we've never had a mountain lion. Yeah, I mean that's mm, yeah. Just the mm, term yeah. lion sounds really scary to me. A lion in your yard. I mean it it. 
it went up like on the the fence in between two houses. There's pictures of it just lounging in the shade. Um, one neighbor took a picture of it. He had found it like he was up drinking his coffee and he looks over and he happens to have a wrought iron fence between him and the walkway that goes up to the park. And the lion's just sitting there looking into his backyard. Wow. Like you just wake up at 8, you know, look out at 8 a.m. having your coffee and hey, there's Mount Lion. I baked four sets of cookies because I was so freaked out. And what did your what did your family do? Were they freaked out too? They ate the cookies. <laughs> uh, they ate the cookies, yes. My husband was pretty calm. My kids were... They liked watching the videos. Um all the other mothers that I know who live in the neighborhood were equally as freaked out because nobody wanted our kids and or small dogs to turn into Scooby snacks um, for this mountain lion. And it was down there for eight hours. Like I didn't hear about any kitty cats becoming I think I'd buy a pound of ground beef and put it over at the steps of the elementary school since it was the weekend and there were no kids there. You know, keep, keep it over by the elementary school away from your house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if it had been during the school year? Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. So it was, it was big news. And they took... Um, I, there were helicopters flying overhead as they were trying to track it down. <laughs> it went for a walk. You literally had a fugitive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was big news in our little suburb. So the bigger question is, does the mountain lion have a wife and babies and relatives that live up in the mountains by the elementary school in your house? Carrie hadn't even uh, thought of it by the look of her face. Right sorry, now. I didn't mean I didn't mean to bring that up. But you know, with deer, where there's one, there's five other ones. So sorry, I didn't mean to bring that up. Oh my god! Uh, it, Carrie was literally speechless here. Actually, yeah, I thought we had a delay in our video because her mouth was just open and she stopped. But it wasn't a delay after all. Oh my god. What if there's more of them? I'm sorry, Carrie. I didn't mean to freak you out. Can you imagine? I mean, this lion was really pretty chill. I mean, he just, he had himself a nice little day in Las Vegas, in the park, in the pools, running around, taking a nice jog, exploring, you know, go going real estate hunting. Sounds like a good day to me. Yeah. What if it has kids and a family? <laughs> so... so on the family note, <laughs> I'm going to take this to our um, our podcast question submission. And we have a question that has to do with family history. So our question this week is, if my mother had endometriosis, what are the chances that I could also have endometriosis? Can you test for it besides surgery? So uh, the number I remember is about 5 to 10% chance if somebody in your family has it, you may have it too. Unfortunately, there's really no good way that we can test for it outside of surgery. I tell patients, it's kind of like looking at a mole on your skin. You can't really see that mole unless you look on the inside. And, and so early endometriosis sometimes looks like little blebs or little moles. And so we have to actually do laparoscopy to be able to see and diagnose the endometriosis. The one giveaway that sometimes you can find out early is if you've got a big endometrioma, mm -hmm. which is uh, affectionately known as a chocolate cyst, because as we've talked about before, gynecologists ruin food by 
calling disgusting pathology <laughs> after delicious things. Um, but a, a chocolate cyst is a big ovarian cyst that's filled with old blood. And when you go in surgically and remove it and, and the fluid starts spilling it out, spilling out, it looks remarkably like Hershey's syrup, um, which is how it got its name. But that is something that does have a very characteristic appearance on an ultrasound. But those certainly don't appear in every single case of endometriosis. And so when you do see them, sometimes they're big enough and clear enough that you can say, yeah, this is likely endo. But in the earlier stage one and two type cases, you don't see those. Um, and so you don't necessarily get that tip off. And, and they're certainly not in every stage three and stage four case either. So one thing I always kind of talk, when I talk to my patients about endometriosis that I try to help them keep in mind is that, you know, back in the day that um, essentially you walked in a fertility doctor's office and you immediately got your ticket to the operating room to have a surgery to look for endometriosis, having surgery and that diagnosis for endometriosis could have some beneficial effects, okay? So if they we treated the endometriosis, you would have increased chances of pregnancy thereafter. Also, it gave you an idea of whether you had kind of a milder form of endometriosis versus a more major form. Now, when I started practicing, I think that's kind of when that was falling a little bit out of favor. And um, what I would end up doing is I would have these people who would be like, yes, I want to have surgery. And then we would do surgery, but it wouldn't change the path that they would want to go in their fertility treatment. So if I came out and said, you have, you know, very severe endometriosis, I really don't think you're going to get pregnant with anything short of IVF. They would still be like, yeah, but I really want to try two or three cycles of something less. And, and it, it, it got to the point where it, it really didn't seem quite as worthwhile. You know, you, you're gaining a few points of chances of pregnancy per month after having that surgery. But um, unless somebody, somebody is actually going to use it as a major decision-making factor, it, I, I haven't found it being super useful unless we're trying to treat for pain or somebody has a big mass or something like that. Yeah, and that's what I was going to add in too. When I started out, we did do laparoscopy a bunch as part of the initial workup. And you know, the thing about that is it's a surgery. I mean, you know, it is laparoscopy. Typically, most people do great and go home the same day, but it's still a surgery and you've got the risk of surgery and you've got to counterbalance that with the benefits. And I agree with Susan. I think if somebody has a really big endometrioma, particularly if they have pain, at least in my experience, if the endometrioma is removed and you really remove the, the sac around the endometrioma, those patients tend to feel a lot better. But you, again, you have to balance that with the fact that you're probably going to do some damage to normal ovarian tissue in order to get to that, that mass. So it's, it's not quite as clear cut as maybe it seems um, in terms of what to do about that. And always remember one of the best treatments for endometriosis is getting pregnant. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I have a patient coming up this Friday who we're going to transfer and it's her second transfer and her first one she said was the best treatment for her endometriosis she has ever had. <laughs> she was previously just completely flattened, totally debilitated by it. And then she got pregnant and a ton of it regressed and her pregnancy was great. And so she's like, yeah, sign me up. Let's do this again. So, yeah, I had a, awesome. sort of a sim similar story that I found out about just recently, a patient that was a, a really essentially an emergency surgery on a Friday 
had a really big endometrioma, about six centimeters. Um, had to call in a surgeon to help me kind of do some of the dissection because it was so big. She ended up getting pregnant with IVF. And then about six months after she had her baby, she got pregnant on her own. Aw, <laughs> that's nice. awesome. Very good. Pretty Very cool story. good. So today we are going to talk about all of those crazy terms that we as fertility doctors toss around when we're talking about IVF. I think half of the battle of helping people understand IVF is just breaking down the dictionary and what what are all these you know weird words or acronyms that we're we're throwing at people in a very short amount of time in a part of their life that nobody ever talks about. So first, let's start with the who's who in the office. And so you walk in the front door, you've got your desk lady or man, I mean, could be anybody. Um, And you've got your phlebotomist who draws your blood. And you've got your ultrasonographer. And you'll get to know your phlebotomist really well, by the way, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. if you do IVF. (laughs) (laughs) And And your sonographer. And your sonographer. Yeah. And, And they tend to know more about the random details of your life that anyone else, because I find out when I'm doing transfers or retrievals or whatever, the the ultrasonographer who's in there with me will go, oh yeah, did you know that she was going to do X, Y, and Z this past weekend? And she was going to go, you know, skydiving and do skywriting <laughs> over the baseball game for, you know, a proposal for somebody. I'm like, how do you know these things? Um, so they find out all sorts of bits and pieces about your life as as you see them all the time. Um, back once you start getting into the lab, you have embryologists and you have andrologists. And who are those people, Carrie? And they are very similar yet different people. They are lab people. um, And the andrologists are primarily working with the sperm, whereas the embryologists are working with both eggs and sperm and the embryos that then result from that. So when you walk into an IVF office and you're talking about eggs versus sperm versus embryos, um, sometimes patients don't necessarily realize, most people know the difference between sperm and everything else, but but they'll use eggs and, and embryos interchangeably. And it's the embryologists who are working with those materials and and eggs and embryos are are very different from one another, and so the embryologists are, um, you know, very highly trained to really shepherd the egg through meeting up with the sperm, going out on a date, hanging hanging out together, deciding that they are not only going to go out on a date, but uh, maybe get some action going afterwards, move in <laughs> together, live together for at least five days, then and then go from there. Um, On a sweeter so, note, Carrie, I think of them as your child's earliest babysitter. They babysit your embryos. So, <laughs> yes, yes, they're not just the dating service and dating planners. They are the earliest <laughs> babysitters. <laughs> Maybe we should start putting that on their scrubs. Yeah, there you go. High tech babysitters. That's right. Um, and then the other people, of course, you're going to have your coordinators, your case managers, and your nurses. Now, in different offices. Those are sometimes the same, sometimes different people. Um, And they're the ones who are helping shepherd you through with ordering your medications, 
telling you when to come back the next time, telling you what your next step is, your next dose is, all of those types of things. And then of course, you've got the uh, urologist if one is needed. And urologists in the context of what we do are primarily working with helping us get sperm out um, in the event that masturbation and, and kind of normal production of sperm is not easily accessible. If there's a blockage there, in other words. Exactly. If there's a blockage or if there's very, very tiny numbers and, and we think that we either are required to or will get much better results by having urologists go in surgically um, and get sperm out for us to use. Um, and then you've got your reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist or REI is the shorthand, which is what Susan and Abby and I all are, are board certified, trained, all of that nonsense. And it means that we've gone through uh, a ton of extra schooling for, and we've all gone through training in OB and GYN to deliver babies and gynecology and all of that, and then fell down the rabbit hole of loving fertility and did extra training in that. And so we've focused, we've gotten the broad general training and then focused more on infertility. And we're the ones who are driving the the train, so to speak, of, okay, this is how the treatment's going to work, what we're going to do in both communicating with you as well as a lot of the science and technology behind it. So kind of once you get started in IVF, one of the terms that was mentioned earlier is we throw around the term gonadotrophins. And basically those are hormones that are secreted by the brain. They go down normally and stimulate your one egg to develop. And so normally women develop one egg on one side each month, and it typically alternates from side to side each month. But with the goal with IVF is we're trying to stimulate a whole bunch of eggs at one time. And so in order to do that, we kind of give you an extra punch of what Mother Nature gave you at the beginning. And so we give you a really high dose of those hormones, those gonadotropins, specifically, usually a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. And so um, that's the hormone that we have to kind of tinker with and regulate for each individual person to, to figure out kind of what dose you need. And then ultimately, after a period of, you know, somewhere between eight to 12 days, somewhere in that range, your eggs, and hopefully there's a whole group of them that come along together at the same rate, get mature. And then ultimately, we use a trigger shot. And so many people are familiar with the trigger shot, even when you don't do IVF, because we trigger eggs even in cycles where we're going to do other procedures. But for IVF, it's really critical that you get the trigger shot at a specific time, because if we don't get the eggs in time they may release into your body without us being able to go in and take them out. So the trigger shot is, is basically a hormone that sort of mimics your, the normal hormone that would cause ovulation. You get that and we time it pretty specifically in terms of when we're going to then do the egg retrieval. Um, and then basically you would come in for the egg retrieval on that, that morning after you get the, the ovidrill shot and then we would put you to sleep. And Susan, you want to take it from here? (laughs) Yeah. So just to add on a few things um, about the trigger and some other things that are happening during the stimulation. So there are actually a number of different ways or medicines that can be used as your, quote, trigger shot. Um, and, And some of those things are going to depend on your physician preference, um, 
how your ovaries look, how high your estrogen level is. Um, And so generally, the two categories of those trigger shots are going to be some sort of HCG hormone, which is pregnancy hormone, or what we call our Lupron trigger, which makes your brain shoot off a hormone called LH. Well, the interesting thing is, is LH and pregnancy hormone in the body look almost exactly like each other. And so that's why they're used interchangeably, but they can, they can have different effects in helping decrease risk of things like ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. Um, some other things that we also use um, during a IVF stimulation are medications to keep you from ovulating. So generally the way the body works is once your estrogen levels get to a certain level, your brain goes, ooh, I need to ovulate and shoot off some of that LH hormone to make ovulation happen. Well, we in IVF, we don't want ovulation to happen because we want to be able to get all those eggs. So we add yeah, we, in, don't, we don't want your ovary shooting off without our permission. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No your shot early. <laughs> We're a little bit of control freaks and that's okay. Um, and um, so we can give you some medicine, um, typically something like uh, Ganarelix or cetratide. Um, sometimes we use a, the, the Lupron that we talked about earlier in a different fashion that can also keep you from ovulating. Um, but those are some important components to keep everything in your ovary until we are set for it all to kind of culminate at the time of the retrieval. So once we are to the point of retrieval, then patient comes in and we put her to sleep with anesthesia and we go in with the ultrasound with a special needle on the end and we pull out all those eggs. Now, it's important to emphasize the difference between eggs and embryos because this is something when patients come in and they they will occasionally refer to eggs and embryos interchangeably. And early on, when we're just in the, the diagnostic phase of treatment and testing, you know, that's okay because we're still just talking in vague terms and more abstractly. But when we actually get into the cycle, those things are very, very different. And and they mean very different things for your future childbearing. An egg is just what contains half of the chromosomes. And it's what the woman gives in, in her contribution to making a baby. And that's compared to an embryo. So an egg is just one cell. And an embryo is the combination of both an egg and sperm. So sperm would be the other half of chromosomes coming from the male contributor. And it's the combination of those two together where not only have they joined, but their chromosomes have become functional and all the machinery inside of that now embryo or a very early embryo is called a zygote. um, Right after it's just just started to form, um, all that machinery has kicked into gear and it goes from being one cell to two cells to four cells to eight cells and just keeps doubling and doubling, doubling until you get to an embryo. Hey, Carrie, one, one point, sorry to interrupt, I wanted to make, and this goes a little bit into genetics, but I think it's kind of really important for women to understand, you know, we talk about age and its impact on cell division and fertility. And one of the really key things that has to happen is when a woman's egg is stored in her body, as many of you know, she has it stored for her, her whole entire life. In other words, she's born with all the eggs that she'll ever get. And those eggs just sit there in limbo. 
And then all of a sudden, when you get that trigger shot and you, you ovulate, all of a sudden after, you know, whatever your age is, 38, 39 years, whatever, the egg has to wake up. And all of a sudden, it has to kick out half of its chromosomes in order for the sperm to join. And unfortunately, that's the problem. I always tell my patients, that's kind of the glitch in our female system. A lot of times that just doesn't work so great that the cell doesn't divide very well. And so that's why when chromos or when embryos sometimes have an abnormal number of chromosomes, we usually blame the egg because unfortunately, that's you know, usually where it comes from. And so I think it's just important for for patients, you know, for you guys to understand that that's kind of one of the things about our female system that's just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> so I don't consider it to be a, a glitch. I always just tell my patients that the the chromosomes that are in pairs at that point, when someone's 40 years old, for example, those chromosomes are best girlfriends and they get the the instructions to separate and go their own own different ways and they're best girlfriends. And so they, of course, say, screw you to that <laughs> set of explanations and then they don't do it. And so I think that it's not a glitch. I think it's just good friendship. Oh, okay. <laughs> it may have so, deleterious results. <laughs> One additional thing to keep in mind for, for our patients who are listening out there is Although we're talking, we, we were talking about how age has that effect, realize that the humans are very, very inefficient at making babies at baseline. Okay. There are lots of critters out there on earth that are much better at this than we are. And that, that when we're talking about embryos potentially having chromosomal abnormalities, even when you're young, even women who are in their 20s, about half of the embryos they create are chromosomally abnormal. So at baseline, we're hitting a 50-50 game on whether we're making chromosomally normal embryos. Now, most of the, and I don't mean for everybody to freak out being like, oh no, I'm going to have a chromosomally abnormal baby. Our bodies are very good filtering mechanisms. And most of those abnormal embryos are never going to implant. And most of the ones that do implant end up resulting in miscarriage. So that's why very few babies are actually percentage-wise born with chromosomal abnormalities. Now, when women start to get into their 40s and especially mid-40s, it's estimated that potentially about 90 to 95% of their embryos at that point are chromosomally abnormal. And that's why it's so, so challenging when we get into kind of the, the, the 40 decade. So let's go back to the eggs for a minute. So once we get the eggs out, they go to the laboratory and then Abby, tell us what, tell us what the lab is looking for and how they're classifying those eggs and why all, not all eggs are created equal. So kind of the first thing the lab does is they look for the polar body. And the polar body is kind of like the little capsule that kicks out those chromosomes that aren't needed by the egg. And so they also look to make sure that the egg is mature. So sometimes if they if the eggs are not mature, um, they'll label them as having a germinal vesicle. Or, and ultimately, those are eggs that are too immature to fertilize. And so they'll look first to see which ones can be fertilized. The ones that can't be fertilized are considered as immature, and essentially they're just kind of eggs that are not usable. And then later that same day, they'll actually take the sperm with one with one needle. They'll take one single sperm, penetrate the egg to bring about fertilization. And so essentially, from the point they do the ICSI procedure, again that stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. 
from the moment they do that procedure, um, the egg and the sperm start to do their thing. And there's many probably mechanisms and things that have to happen in that time period that we really don't have testing for. Um, we, it's sort of out of our hands at that point. But the next morning, roughly about 24 hours after the eggs have been taking, taken out of the patient's body, they can check and see how many have actually fertilized at that point. Um, so they'll look for something called a male and female pronuclei. And at that stage, the embryo is one cell. It only has one single cell. And over the course of about five days, that one single cell goes from one cell to about 140 to 150 cells um, as it grows and divides. Um, ultimately, we can also check it at different times in its development. And we tend to do that less so now than we did before. We think it's better to leave our little embryos in the lab and keep them in the incubator and not bring them out and check them as much. But if we were to check them around the third day of development, at that point, we should ultimately see about six to eight cells. Um, and at that stage, um, you know, hopefully they'll continue to grow on, grow and divide. But from day three to about day five, they really um, get jump started and grow really quickly. And on day five, that's when we actually label them as a blastocyst. And so that means that there's a cavity, a cystocele cavity. There's an area that's called the inner cell mass in the embryo. And there's an area called the trophoblastic tissue. And those are very, very early um, developments in the baby's life and the embryo's life. And so the inner cell mass will actually become the baby. The trophoblastic tissue will become the placenta and the blastocyst cavity will actually become the early amniotic sac. So when we're taking a look at these embryos, like, like Abby mentioned, sometimes we, we always look at them on day one and we always look at them on day five and that's based on the day post-retrieval. Um, nowadays, we're looking at day three less, but remember embryos go through a major metabolic stress on day two and day four. Okay. And so as embryos are developing, it is normal for not all of them to survive to that blastocyst stage. Okay. Now, embryos that do make it to that blastocyst stage, they're, they're pretty nifty. They are, they are very resilient <laughs> little suckers. Um, and, and at this point, the embryologists typically grade them. Okay. Now, there are lots of different grading systems and, and we're not going to get lost in the minutia of that today, okay? But realize that there are going to be some that are good <laughs> and those can have different grades and there are going to be some that are so poor quality that we know that they are not going to result in a baby, okay? And there, there's good data to support that. And so at that point, the, the decision is made is, you know, are you going to have a fresh embryo transfer or a frozen embryo transfer? And, and kind of the big differences of those are a fresh embryo transfer, it implies that the embryo has never been cryopreserved. So you're coming off your egg retrieval, they've put you on some progesterone and that little embryo is going to get put in, you know, around day five or day six after um, your egg retrieval. Now, what's becoming more and more common for a number of reasons is for the embryos to be cryopreserved and then coming back in a subsequent cycle to put that embryo in. Now, some big reasons why that's come about in the past five, 10 years is number one, more people are um, doing chromosome testing or what we call PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing 
on the embryos, mainly for to make sure we have the right number of chromosomes. We call it aneuploidy, um, but making sure there's the right complement that's going to make a healthy baby. Um, the other reason behind that is that we have found in certain groups of people that all those hormones that are going crazy uh, during your IVF cycle actually create not such a great environment for implantation. So if we can let things settle down and calm down and really create that perfect little home for an embryo, we're getting better success rates. So some of the alphabet soup that people get confused by is looking at how the embryo testing is named when we're looking at genetic testing. And so that is a whole extra episode all by itself. But um, the current terminology is PGT, pre-implantation genetic testing. And then there's a hyphen with a letter after it. And the most common is A, which stands for aneuploidy, which as Susan was talking about is, is really addressing whether there is an extra chromosome present or a missing chromosome present. And the embryos are very sensitive to that extra or missing genetic material. And even if it's just one chromosome, that is enough to throw the development off. And so we don't use those. Um, And so we'll talk in more detail in a future episode about all of those details and what the different types of genetic testing are, but that's an important one to know. Um, when we are talking about doing genetic testing with PGTA, that is done typically on blastocysts, so those day five embryos, rather than cleavage stage embryos. Cleavage stage embryos are embryos that are typically on day three or so of growth. By day three, you really only have about an eight cell embryo. And so if you can imagine taking out a couple of cells from an eight cell embryo, that's a much bigger proportion compared to taking out four or five cells from a blastocyst that has at least, let's say, 150 to 300 cells. That's a much smaller fraction and something that's much easier for the embryo to tolerate. And so, um, so that's part of the reason why blastocysts tend to, to be where the majority of clinics grow their embryos to. All right. So we've talked about fresh versus frozen. We've talked about all of the blastocyst cleavage lingo, eggs versus embryos, GVs versus M2s. Do we miss anything, ladies? I think we got it all. If not, we will have another episode. (laughs) (laughs) Give it a week and I'm sure the terminology on something will change. I feel like the genetics testing terminology changes about every six months or so. It's been been stable for what, a year now? Yeah. They'll probably change again though soon. I, I sometimes for our audience, you maybe read something that talks about PGS. PGS is just the old term for PGT with the whatever letter after it. Mm-hmm. I remember our first national meeting where there was this big change of PGS to PGT. I thought like every other word people said was PGT. I think they were just trying to say it as many times as possible so that they could remember what they were saying. Well, and and just to throw one last term, this is a vintage term for IVF, if I can use that terminology now. This is something that you may look up and find it on the internet. And occasionally, I actually get a question about this, even to this day, because things never die on the internet. So we (laughs) we don't do GIFT anymore. That's called, (laughs) that stands for Gamete Intrafallopian Transfer. And that's where basically back in the day, before embryologists could really grow embryos very well in the lab, they would actually laparoscopically remove eggs from a woman 
and basically in that same procedure, go back in and mix her husband's sperm and the egg together and put them in the fallopian tubes. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> that was a long, <laughs> long time ago. Good so that's stuff. That's soup that we don't have to worry about anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always changing, always growing. And that's what makes what we do so exciting. So Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. Uncensored. (laughs) To our audience, thank you for listening. Please turn next week for more exciting insights into your fertility journey. Um, Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us us reviews in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You could also visit us at fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or to submit... submit specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Docs uh, segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye.